morning, afternoon, or evening, whatever time of day you may be listening. This is Unknown Friends, episode four, and I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions. Today, our subject is Charles Dickens's first novel, The Pickwick Papers. And for anyone who's wondering, I double-checked, and the possessive of Dickens is indeed pronounced Dickens's. So I'll do my best to say it correctly. Now, this man is one of my favorite authors. Uh, C.S. Lewis holds first place, but Dickens is way up there. He's at least top five, maybe top three. He's had a special spot in my heart since college, and I actually wrote my senior thesis for my English degree on his last completed novel, Our Mutual Friend. So I've spent many, many hours reading about his life and his writing, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to share his story with you this week. Now, as I said, The Pickwick Papers is his very first novel, and in many ways it's unique in the Dickens canon. His style and structure dramatically developed the more he wrote, and personally, his later novels are my favorites, but there's much to be said for his early ones as well. Today, I am going to devote less time to the book's themes than I usually do, and a lot of time to the context in which Dickens wrote, because I think the real key to unlocking this book is understanding the young Charles Dickens and the circumstances of how the Pickwick Papers came to be written at all. So let's start at the beginning. Charles Dickens was born on February 7th, 1812. I find that easy to remember because the date, February 7th, is also my sister's birthday. And the year, 1812, uh, got a war named after it. So that's convenient. There's a lot you can say about Dickens' childhood and family that influenced his later writing, but I'm not going to go into those things today for the sake of time. We'll skip his childhood for now. So fast forward from 1812 to 1833. We are in London, and Dickens, 21 years old, doesn't know for sure what he wants to do with his life yet, but he is absolutely bursting with potential. In his late teens, he worked for a while as a junior clerk at a law office, and he's now a journalist, specifically a political or legal journalist, reporting on court cases, uh, debates, campaigns, things of that sort. He's also brimming with enthusiasm for the theater, and he spends countless hours there studying the actors and comedians. Uh, and Dickens considered acting as a profession and was actually lined up for an audition at one point, but missed it because he had a cold. But another possibility in Dickens's head was writing fiction. And the first evidence of that came in December 1833, when his very first piece of published fiction appeared in The Monthly Magazine. That was its actual name. The piece was published anonymously, and it was titled A Dinner at Poplar Walk. Soon, Dickens was writing all kinds of little sketches, uh, some short fiction, some just scenes of London life focusing on a certain place 
or event or type of person. And he got these published in a variety of magazines and periodicals over the next two years or so. After getting several published, while he still didn't use his real name, he started signing them with a pen name, Boz, B-O-Z, which is just like Dickens to choose a pen name like that. It may well have been originally pronounced Bose because it was it was a corruption of a corruption of a nickname, kind of. Uh, Dickens had nicknamed his little brother Moses at one point, which then uh, decayed into Boses, which was then shortened to Bose. And finally, Dickens took the name for himself for these sketches. Anyway, the pieces were moderately successful. And Dickens was encouraged, and already he was dreaming of bigger things. Uh, Not that he remotely envisioned himself as the world-famous author he eventually became, but he was full of energy and more than willing to take on new projects and challenges. And he did have this uh, underlying desire to write something serious, something a little more literary, uh, more meaningful than just these articles for magazines. So fast forward a little bit more to the beginning of 1836. Dickens is still writing his short sketches and also still working as a journalist. And he's now engaged to be married to a young lady uh, named Catherine Hogarth. On February 7th, 1836, Dickens turns 24 which is how old I currently am, and it just amazes me how many things he was already doing at this point. On February 8th, and this is a big step for Dickens, the day after his birthday, his various pieces of short fiction, which have been collected and edited, are published altogether under the full title Sketches by Boz, illustrative of everyday life and everyday people. So that was an exciting day. And the collection was well-received publicly. Now, two days after it came out, February 10th, Dickens receives an unexpected offer. The publishers, Chapman and Hall, were working with an artist, uh, Richard Seymour, and they wanted to publish a series of cartoons, essentially, by Seymour, accompanied by little comic episodes written to explain the pictures, and they asked Dickens to write those. As you might expect, Dickens agreed immediately, uh, excitedly. This was a wonderful new opportunity for such a young writer, and more substantial and long-term than anything he'd done before, so he was thrilled. So he agreed, and then and this is classic Dickens, he gave it a bit more thought and he told the publishers, yeah, this is awesome. I'm 100% on board, except let's just tweak one thing. How about instead of the pictures being created first and me writing scenes to go with them, how about I write first and your illustrator can draw pictures to accompany my stories? (laughs) Well, luckily for Dickens, the publishers did agree to this, uh, the illustrator more reluctantly, and Dickens got right to work. On February 18th, just eight days after receiving the offer, 
Dickens sat down and wrote the opening lines of what would become his first novel and the publication that would make him a national celebrity. Six weeks later, end of March, the first two chapters are printed and the Pickwick Club was introduced to the public. Now, understand how they're publishing this. Dickens has to write two to three chapters every month, and they're printed and sold in segments like that, monthly installments. So think about the implications of that if you're writing a novel, which, frankly, Dickens didn't exactly know what he was writing when he started. This was a new venture, not only for him, but it was pretty much new in the publishing world. But he writes this thing in monthly installments for over a year and a half. So he can't go back and change details from the beginning if he gets a different idea later on. There's no editing. You just have to write at breakneck speed. And if you get a new idea that doesn't really fit with what you wrote before, you have to drop it or you just have to make it fit. So this is truly an evolving story because when it started, literally no one had a clue what it was going to be about, what the structure or style of it would be, or how insanely popular it would get. So there's the unknown factor and the inability to change what you've previously written. There's also just the element of speed and the tremendous pressure Dickens was under as he wrote each month. Mind you, in addition to writing Pickwick, he's still working as a reporter until uh, November 1836, when he finally quits his job as a political journalist. But of course, because he's Charles Dickens, he quits journalism in order to take up a position as editor of a new magazine. And meanwhile, over the summer of 1836, and I find this hilarious, Dickens signs agreements with multiple publishers, committing himself to write three other novels and a children's book. And he's working on various shorter writing projects of his own. You, you just gotta roll your eyes sometimes. Anyway, back to the spring of 1836. On April 2nd, just two days after the first installment of Pickwick was published, Dickens got married. He went on a quick honeymoon, returned to London, met with the Pickwick Papers illustrator for the first time, and two days later, Seymour, the illustrator, committed suicide. I kid you not, that bodes well for this project, right? Yeah, so now here's Dickens, newly married, the first two chapters of who knows what kind of project printed, which was originally supposed to be built around the work of Seymour, and now there's no Seymour, and Dickens has less than two weeks to finish writing the second installment and work with his publishers to find a new illustrator. Anyway, long story short, they try one guy, Dickens doesn't like his work, so he brings in the young Hablet Knight Brown, a younger man than Dickens himself, only 21 at this point. But Dickens likes his engraving work, and this actually begins a lifelong collaboration. Hablet Brown illustrated many of Dickens's future novels, and he took the pseudonym Fizz to go with Dickens's pen name Boz. They, uh, they made a good team. 
Dickens tried each month to get the writing done in time for Hablet Brown to read it before making the illustrations, but sometimes time was so tight, Dickens would just run over to Brown's home, describe what he had in his head for Pickwick that month, and Brown was amazing. He could design illustrations and get them engraved within 24 hours. Anyway, so this is the situation. Just the sheer load on Dickens's shoulders of coming up with material each month against constant deadlines and working full-time elsewhere and starting a family. So let's step back for a moment since we've been looking so closely at the first few months of the writing of the Pickwick Papers and let's get a bird's eye view of how the project developed over time. So he started writing in February 1836, and the final installment was published at the end of October 1837, so around a year and a half in the making. I told you Dickens got married right after the first installment was published, but then a lot more happened in his personal life during that year and a half. So January 1837, his first child is born, first of ten, Charles Dickens Jr. The next month, February 1837, he turns 25 and begins writing a second novel on top of Pickwick Papers, and this will be Oliver Twist, which he also published in monthly installments over a period of the next two years. So he's now a father, now working as a magazine editor, and writing two books simultaneously. The next month, March 1837, he and his family move to Better Lodgings, 48 Dowdy Street, London, which, by the way, still stands, and it now houses a Charles Dickens museum. My sister and I got to see it one time when I was visiting her in the UK. And when Dickens moved, his younger brother Frederick and his wife's younger sister, Mary, both moved in with them, which wasn't an uncommon thing at the time. But two months later, in May of 1837, uh, Mary, Dickens's sister-in-law, passes away at age 17 after a brief illness, we're not sure what caused it, but possibly heart failure. And this was, this was the first tragedy in the young Dickens family, and they all felt it deeply. So, as you can see, this was an extraordinarily eventful time in Dickens's life, and it is astonishing how much he accomplished under the strain of his circumstances. And while the Pickwick Papers had a rocky start, and no one knew where it was headed, Dickens seemed to have a larger vision for it than anyone else did. Originally, the publishers and the initial illustrator had envisioned the series comically following the adventures and accidents of a bunch of cockney sportsmen. And Dickens incorporates this some, but he goes far, far beyond that. In fact, this topic was kind of a trope at the time, a cliche of sorts, and Dickens knew that and saw that he could expand and explore so much more than just hunting and fishing misadventures, which people had seen before. So he creates this club 
with four leading characters, and he makes one of them a sportsman, or a wannabe sportsman. Mr. Winkle fills in as the man who, who fancies himself a sportsman, but actually can't shoot straight to save his life. The other three members are Mr. Tupman, who's just always falling hopelessly in love with women. Mr. Snodgrass, who is of a poetic literary turn of mind. And of course, the illustrious Mr. Pickwick himself, uh, the leader of the club, who is as innocent and naive as he is benevolent. So already you see potential for misadventures of all kinds, just given these four men and their particular traits. So for a while, the story does feel very rambling, and you get no real sense of where it's going in the long run. But of course, that makes perfect sense, because Dickens was writing this initially as a series of short comic episodes, and it was only as time went on and the series started getting more popular and picking up pace that he started to see further ahead and, and see the possibilities. And he began to shape all these little adventures into a more unified whole. But remember, he couldn't go back and change the beginning. He had to mold things as he went to create a story that had more of a, a big picture plot. And it is amazing how as you get into the middle and second half of the novel, he does manage to tie in characters who were just casually introduced in the early chapters, and he keeps bringing them back and weaving them into an overarching plot structure by the end. So it does take a long time before you start to get that sense of direction in the story, but it's funny, it sort of happens without you noticing. Uh, for quite a few chapters, you're you're just on this roller coaster from misadventure to misadventure. And then eventually, several of those incidents start to weigh more in the story than you expected. And they are followed up with connected events that complicate things. And before you know it, you realize that the story does have some direction and the characters are in much deeper than the original comic episodes led you to believe. And of course, everything works itself out by the end and all the loose ends are tied up. And when you finish reading the novel and you look back, it's incredible how much more significance the story accumulated in the process than it showed at the beginning. You can see how much these four members of the Pickwick Club have actually changed. They've achieved goals and found their way through major transitions, and they've formed new friendships and learned important life lessons along the way. Now, admittedly, throughout the whole novel, the main storyline is frequently interrupted by little unrelated vignettes, generally in the form of some random person the main characters meet who tells them a weird story. I'm serious, they'll just, they'll just be at an inn, and some funny-looking guy is there, and they strike up a conversation, and then Dickens takes a whole chapter to let the guy tell a creepy ghost story, or a 
tale about something strange or tragic that happened to a second cousin once removed. It's a little distracting because these side stories about goblins and murderers are pretty much rabbit trails. Now, sometimes they share a common theme with whatever is going on in the Pickwick Club at the time. Maybe they teach a related lesson. But it is also true that Dickens was writing at high speed and incorporating, in some ways, whatever he could catch hold of. So you end up with the comic, the sentimental, and the outlandishly gothic all slapped down side by side in this novel because Dickens was exploring. And so he felt free and perhaps even felt compelled by his deadlines to include whatever crossed his mind as he wrote. So you do have to roll with that and learn to just expect it as you're reading the Pickwick papers. And that will make the reading process less frustrating. Now, one more thing I do have to describe briefly. You can't talk about the Pickwick Papers and not mention the delightful character, Sam Weller. He is this lovable, unflappable, clever cockney who I think makes the book. He isn't introduced until several chapters in, but once he joins the main characters, he is so much fun. He becomes Mr. Pickwick's servant, and so accompanies Pickwick on the rest of his adventures, and more often than not, gets his master out of the ones that go awry. He's impish and full of hilarious little sayings, but he's also loyal to the core, and the bond that develops between him and his master is the best thing in the book, I think. Side note, J.R.R. Tolkien, he didn't actually like the Pickwick Papers, but I say Sam Weller had something to do with Samwise Gamgee, whether Tolkien liked it or not. I don't know. That's not a scholarly opinion, just my personal feeling. Anyway, Sam Weller makes the book worth reading, if nothing else does. And speaking of Sam, it seems that he was one of the biggest factors in the popularity of the Pickwick Papers back when Dickens was first writing it. Sam first appeared in the fourth installment, and sales noticeably increased from that point. And before long, before the book was even finished, the Pickwick Papers had made Dickens a celebrity. Not exaggerating. Just, just consider the numbers. The first installment of the book, in, uh, in March 1836, the publishers printed about 400 copies. Then, like I said, Sam Weller boosted its popularity, and the thing just exploded over time until by the time they were printing the last installment in October 1837, guess how many copies they were printing? 40,000. Yeah, Dickens was a national phenomenon at this point. Soon there was the Pickwick hat and the Pickwick coat, and the Pickwick cigar being marketed everywhere. And the extraordinary thing, too, the Pickwick Papers was popular with every social class. It transcended 
status. So you had everyone from literally the young Queen Victoria reading and discussing it to judges and doctors reading during their work breaks, all the way down to people so poor they couldn't afford the shilling it cost to buy a copy of the monthly segment. In fact, they couldn't even read, but they would pool their pennies and get someone who could to read it aloud to them all. This actually happened. And I think at the heart of this phenomenon was these two central characters, Mr. Pickwick, whose first name is Samuel, by the way, and his servant, Sam Weller, who bring together the high and low classes and humanize the one for the other. There's this understanding and fellowship between these two men who have opposite origins, but become united in their experiences, and they harmonize remarkably well and forge a friendship that's immensely beneficial to each of them. So if you can't guess, I do recommend the Pickwick Papers to you as a book worth reading. Now, I readily admit it's difficult without an introduction or an explanation because it does go all over the place, especially in the beginning. But that's why I spent so much time in this episode establishing the book's context because it helps make so much more sense of the writing. If you go into it expecting it to be like Dickens's later novels, you're going to be uh, profoundly confused. In fact, if you expect it to have any clear direction for a while, you're going to be frustrated. But it helps if you understand that this was Dickens's first grand experiment, and he didn't even know that it would eventually be a novel. So read it expecting just a set of lovable, fallible characters to encounter a series of hilariously uh, unfortunate events, along with some random ghost stories, and just allow Dickens to entertain you. And eventually, when he does take it a little deeper, and you sense the structure he has built behind the scenes, you'll be pleasantly surprised. And if you're like me, you'll find yourself growing more invested in the story and attached to the characters than you expected. That said, one last caveat, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for a first-time Dickens reader. I mean, with this context in mind, I'm sure you can make your way through it and enjoy it, but just know that it's not really representative of what Dickens's writing became. His work grew so much in, in depth and complexity and the skill he developed to intricately entwine scores of characters and plot lines, still while publishing in monthly installments, by the way, it's, it's mind-blowing. So if you do start here, just don't judge Dickens as a writer by the Pickwick Papers. And if you want to know where might be a better place to start with Dickens... I would recommend beginning with one of his shorter works. I actually sought some feedback from several of my friends who also love Dickens, and I got some awesome suggestions. 
several different suggestions, but all good ones, and two particularly emphatic. So if you want something short and familiar and probably the easiest entryway to Dickens, you should read A Christmas Carol. That is an excellent place to start and it gives you a good taste of his style and of some of his favorite themes. The other uh, vehement suggestion was David Copperfield, which is known as Dickens's somewhat autobiographical novel, written right in the middle of his career. It, it isn't one of his shorter works, in fact, I confess, it's actually his longest. Sorry. It's, uh, it's got Dombey and Son beat by five words, if the internet can be trusted. But David Copperfield is definitely classic Dickens, uh, very representative of his distinctive characters and the way he fashions detailed, interconnected storylines. Really, both of these two works get you into the heart of Dickens so I think either would be a wonderful introduction if you're new to his work. I'll just add from personal experience, Great Expectations was the novel that got me hooked on Dickens. I read it in college, and because it's a coming-of-age novel, it hit me at just the right moment where I felt really connected with the characters. It's, it's kind of... Dickens's weird side. It's uh, it's darkly comic and features some of his best bizarre characters and plot twists, which I was intrigued by, but wouldn't necessarily appeal to everyone. Anyway, those are a few suggestions for places you could start with Dickens, or if you want to jump into the the haphazard comedy of the Pickwick Papers, then go for it. Hopefully this background about Charles Dickens will help as you navigate the book's uncharted waters. And that's it for the Pickwick Papers today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you come back next week. We will pretty drastically be switching gears from Charles Dickens to Kazuo Ishiguro. I plan to review his 2005 novel, Never Let Me Go, about which I have very mixed feelings, but I hope to draw a few conclusions in the episode next week. As always, please message me if you have thoughts on today's episode, or on any books by Charles Dickens that you've read, or feel free to share suggestions for books you'd like me to review in future. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you for episode 5.